You are listening to The Recovered Therapist, brought to you by FreshOutOfPlans.com. I'm Jeannie Griffin, and I'll be your host. Instead of focusing on labels, diagnoses, and psychobabble, we keep things honest, simple, and hopeful so that you can grow personally and spiritually. Thank you for joining me. Today I'd like to talk about why some people become addicted to mood-altering chemicals and other people do not. Now, many years ago in the 1930s, when people were first being treated by uh, Dr. Silkworth for addiction, really namely alcoholism and some drug addiction, he didn't have research to determine exactly what was going on. But he said, you know, there is a problem in these people's bodies and their minds. The thinking is different and something happens in their their physical bodies. And that was brand new. Um, prior to that, people who had become addicted to alcohol or other mood-altering drugs were considered sinners and criminals and weak-willed people and deadbeats and no-counts and all just terrible, terrible judgment. And that still lingers today, unfortunately. But Silkworth said, no, there's something more than this. It's not just a moral problem at all. It is a physiological problem and a thinking problem. Well, he was laughed at. But in 1956, the American Medical Association said, oh, yeah, guess what? Alcoholism is, in fact, an illness. And even since then, it's been debated and there are some people who just say, oh, no, they're just weak-willed people. Uh, excuse me. Have you ever tried to convince somebody who's active addiction to do something they didn't want to do? They're very strong-willed people. But thank heaven, we now know more about what happens in the brain. And so I'm going to do probably a great injustice to all the researchers who have spent their life trying to teach us this. And I'm going to reduce it into this teeny-tiny broadcast um, But what happens essentially when you become addicted and your neighbor doesn't or your sister doesn't or your brother doesn't, but you do, is your brain gets hijacked. Now, what do I mean by that? We have this sophisticated brain that is designed to keep us alive. And it has this incredible survival mechanism to it and one part of the brain says, hey, this is something you're going to need down the road to survive. And so that's what's happening. We know by brain research, and we can look into the brain today and see brain studies that we haven't been able to previously. So we know that there is a pleasurable effect that happens in the old reward center of the brain. And so when somebody uses a mood-altering, mind-altering chemical, It gives them relief, pleasure. Um, Remember, the goal is for everything we do is pleasure or relief and safety. So you might hear people say, well, I just need a drink to take the edge off, or I just need to do a little, smoke a little pot and take the edge off. Well, that may be how it begins. You choose to do that, but that's not the way this thing ends. So the pleasure center gets activated and dopamine is a brain chemical that says hey that was pleasurable we used to think that was all there was to it but more importantly there's another 
brain chemical that is released called glutamate. And the glutamate says, oh, that was pleasurable? All right, great. I'm going to remember everything about that because you need it for survival. I'll remember the people, the places, the things, the sounds, the, the uh, colors, everything about it. And I'll tuck it away and you need that for survival. So those two pair up. So that what happens in your brain, if you become addicted, is that pleasurable feeling or that relief, that safe feeling, somehow gets tied to, and you better use this again if you're going to be safe. You have to use this because your survival depends on it. Now, if you don't become addicted, those two don't get paired up. And so you might have um, some choice about it to be able to use mood-altering chemical and not associate with survival. Now, some of that has to do with just genetics. Some of it has to do with the nature of the drug. So some drugs are much more highly addictive than other drugs. So you will, um, most all of us would become addicted if we used opiates for any period of time. Um, Some people would become addicted if we used other kind of mood-altering chemicals. Now, pot has become very um, common these days, but make no mistake, the the pot, and, and you know the name is not cannabis or marijuana, it's called just pot, because people minimize it. But today's THC and today's pot, even if it is medicinal, even if it is legalized in your state, it has an incredibly high THC content, and we are seeing many, many more and more and more young men, some women, but mainly young men between the ages of 18 to about 27, who are having psychotic breaks on this pot. Make no mistake, the legalization has nothing to do with the fact that it is, quote, less addictive. It is an economic decision to be able to tax it and have more revenue. It's called a sin tax. We tax all the things that somebody used to call sins. That's ridiculous because it has nothing to do with morals. So in your brain, if you become addicted, your brain makes that determination. Not you, not your willpower, your genetics and your brain. And then you, what happens when you become addicted to it, that glutamate says you need this for survival. And what happens is the frontal lobe of your brain becomes offline. The midbrain, the area where your morals are, your own values, not just what you've been taught and how you're supposed to act, but what is in your, ingrained in you, that goes offline. So you may come out of rehab and immediately start relapsing and go use chemicals, or you may walk out of a jail and walk to the nearest bar and have a drink, and everybody laughs. And some people will say, what on earth are you doing? Why can't you remember? Don't you remember what happened to you last time? Why on earth are you drinking now? Why on earth are you starting this again? You know what happened. But here's the deal. In the addict, when they become addicted and the glutamate and the dopamine are giving them these signals, they cannot remember. Their frontal lobe goes offline And they cannot bring into their consciousness with enough force the memory of what happened the last time. It's not that they just are willfully doing this. They truly don't have the mental capacity to remember how bad it was. See, using chemicals 
when you become addicted, you do not remember what the drug did to you. You remember what the drug does for you. It's called euphoric recall. Now, why does this happen? We still don't know exactly why is it that you and your sibling came from the same parents, but one of you becomes addicted and the other one doesn't. That's in the genetics. Now, an interesting study quite a long time ago was twin adoption studies, and they studied twins that had been adopted and separated at birth. They found that environment didn't really make as much impact as the genetics. So we know there's a genetic predisposition. It's not an indictment, but it is a predisposition that the stronger and the more generations where there was addiction, the stronger it's going to come through. And interestingly enough, it comes through the male line more virulently. So you can have a young addict, and there are so many young people who are addicted these days. And it used to be people who were older would say, oh, you can't be an addict because, you know, you can't be, get addicted to pot. You know, that's just funny. No, no, uh-uh, I smoked pot and I didn't get addicted or I drank terribly and I didn't get addicted. Well, you know, if you don't get addicted, it has nothing to do with you. That sounds kind of stupid, doesn't it? But if you get addicted, it's your brain making that determination. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you have good moral character or not. Now, so this thing is a genetics, biological disease, body. It is also a thinking disease because you're not able to make decisions rationally and bring into consciousness all of the consequences that have happened. It is a thinking disease. It is also a spiritual disease because you go against your spirit. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about going against your own spirit. Stop and ask yourself, have I done things under the influence of mood-altering chemicals that I wish I had not done, that go against my own code of ethics, not what somebody tried to teach me, but I believe is wrong? And the answer is usually yes. And have you made promises? Oh, I promise I'm going to do so-and-so, and you have not done it. You didn't keep it. When you can't have your words and actions match, it, it, it cuts away at your spirit. And when you say, well, I won't do that, and you do, it cuts away at your spirit. So if you find yourself in trouble and in this addicted state, I want you to know that it has nothing to do with your decision or your moral character. It is a biochemical imbalance that has gone awry in your head. Okay, It is not your fault now. That doesn't mean everything you've done under the influence you get off scot-free. Did you know? Do you think a diabetic signed up for wanting to be a di- diabetic? Do you think a person born with one leg wanted that? I know people who are addicted don't want to be addicted, especially if you're 18, 19, and you haven't even had your first drink at 21 yet. So it's not your, your fault that your body kind of did this, you know? Uh, It's like if you became allergic to shellfish. Well, when you become allergic to mood-altering, mind-altering chemicals, and you might break out in handcuffs and do something that is illegal. Same thing. It's not your fault. However, once you determine and answer the question, do I have this thing? Am I addicted? Did my brain 
cross over that little invisible line and become addicted? Did it? And if the answer to that is yes, then you have a second decision to make. If I have this thing, do I want to treat it? And that's your choice. Do I want to treat it? And your decision may be, no, I don't want to. So fine, go be a dope fiend. If your decision is yes, then you need to get yourself to a group of people who can help you the best. Go to a 12-step meeting. Ask them, how did they know? Contact someone who specializes in addiction. Don't just go talk to just anybody who doesn't understand what's happening in the brain. You have to make a decision. Do I have this thing? And B, am I going to treat it? And your family will support you. But you know what? They're not going to support you financially, emotionally, and every single which way so you can kill yourself or, or systematically commit suicide. That's just too painful. So another question I talk to families about is how many more of their relapses are you going to put up with? You may have two or three or five or ten more relapses in you if you're addicted, but your family has to say, how many more of my loved one's relapses do I have left in me? And the answer may be none. There's a wonderful, a lot of things, good things on YouTube, but there's a wonderful uh, presentation by Kevin McCauley, Dr. Kevin McCauley, that's on YouTube. And it comes from his DVD called PleasureUnwoven.com. So go to YouTube, and I'll put the links below. And you don't have to watch the whole thing, but there are a couple of clips in there that show you exactly what I'm talking about and how the brain gets overtaken And the next thing you know, getting that drug is the most important thing because we associate it with survival. And the addict says, I got to have that. Get out of my way. And with my frontal lobe offline and my moral character offline, then it allows me to go into your purse and steal from you or call you names or lie to you. They're not doing it deliberately to hurt families and other people. They're doing it because their brain, the addiction is driving the bus. So learn the difference between when the addict is under the influence and in in the grips of this thing. An exercise, if you're listening and you're a parent, get out a sheet of paper. On the front side, write my loved one's original recipe. Now, what do you know about that person when, when they're not under the influence? What are the characteristics? Are they loving, kind, curious, funny, creative? Put all those characteristics down. That's how they were created. That's the original recipe. And then flip it over on the back side. My loved one's mutation. And then list all the characteristics that you see when they are under the influence. Mean, arrogant, slothful, lying, selfish, insensitive. That's the addict. That's the addiction. That's the addict that is mutated the original recipe. So know when and who you're talking to. And don't support the addict or the addiction. One of the problems that families have is that you cannot get your head around the fact that you're talking to the addict because it doesn't make sense. They're doing things that don't make sense. And so you end up, your part of this illness is that you end up talking to them expecting a rational decision, a rational response. You're not going to get one. Their brain is impaired. It's taken hostage by something bigger than it is. So look at these clips. I'll put them in the show notes underneath. But look at these clips on YouTube. 
And if you want to ask more questions, you can always contact me at freshoutofplans.com or at least do some research, okay? Go to an open AA meeting, go to an open MA meeting, go to an open CA, NA, whatever A, and ask and talk to those people. What was your experience like? How did you know if you were addicted? How do I know? Read some literature. Contact addiction specializing people. Contact doctors that are specializing in addiction medicine. The help is out there for both the addict, and when I say addict, I mean alcoholic. When I say alcoholic, I mean addict, because the brain doesn't care what kind of chemical it is or who gave it to them, whether it comes out of a pretty bottle and it's called a new craft beer, whether it came from the dealer on the end of the street. The brain just says, hey, yay, I like this. And also, if you need some information as a family member, don't suffer alone. It's too painful to see somebody you love in the grips of this thing. Contact. Contact me or contact someone else who specializes in addiction or go to something called Al-Anon, A-L-A-N-O-N. Naranon for people that have loved ones in Narcotics Anonymous. It's for friends and families, people who love someone who might be addicted. Well, that qualifies the whole planet. We all know somebody who's in trouble with chemicals. Oh, that brings up the last point, and then I'll shut up. You keep talking about, ooh, they've got a problem with this. They've got a problem with that. They've got a problem with pot. They've got a problem with this. Don't call it a problem. Because to them, it's not a problem. It's their solution. If I feel socially awkward, my solution is to use a chemical. If I'm upset and I need to take the edge off, my solution is to drink. Take a drink. Do something. If I want to be the life of the party, my solution is to use some mood-altering chemical. See, these chemicals are my solution. That's how we get into them to begin with. And then they take over in our bodies. I help families. These days I'm helping a bunch of parents who are so helpless to help their sons and daughters, especially sons who are so in the grips and have been since their first toke on a cigarette in, you know, four, at age 14. And yet the addict is so entitled they will expect you to support them, give them everything they want, pay their phone, give them rent-free house, or pay their rent if they live away from you, new car, great clothes, and then don't tell me what to do. Well, wouldn't that be nice? That's not the way of the world. So please contact somebody and watch these clips. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Recovered Therapist where we keep topics honest, simple, and hopeful. I love you. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. Until next time.